everyone. I'm Janet B. I'm recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Welcome um, here. And so we are going to pick up where we left off on Monday. Um, people said they wanted like a little workshop on how to sponsor. So again, not offered as the definitive how to sponsor in all caps. But what this is, is it's a way. It's just the way that I take my sponsees through the steps. So again, take what you want and leave the rest here. So last week we went through kind of the initial conversation that we have with someone and working on helping someone to admit that they are powerless. So we left with, I go and I sit with someone and explain it and kind of break it down, hoping that they can understand it. And then I send them back to do some work to write, to make sure that they've internalized it so that they can come back and write examples of their own of how they're powerless. So we come back and what I generally do is then I do a little bit of work in chapter three, more about alcoholism. Um, Cause remember I wanna move quickly and I send them back to listen to my podcast on more about alcoholism. It's about 40 minutes so they could just do it on their own. Again, Melissa has podcasts on it. Plenty of people have podcasts. So, um, but because they're my sponsees and in my podcast, I highlighted what I thought was important. And then I just um, go over the second half of step one. We admitted we were powerless over food and that our lives had become unmanageable. So then I direct them to page 52 the second full paragraph. And this is why it's good to do this on Zoom because I just keep interrupting them. So Kathy M, you wanna be my fake sponsee? Yes, I'm happy to be. Kathy M from Virginia. Um, we had to ask ourselves why we shouldn't apply to our human problems the same readiness to change our point of view. We were having trouble with personal relationships. Is that we you? Could. Is that you? Can you hear me? Yes. No, that's what I asked my sponsees. Is oh, that you? It's me. Okay, go ahead. Um, we were a prey to misery and depression. Is that you? Yes. Keep going. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. Is that you? Yes. Go, go ahead. We were you free. Ahead. We were full of fear. Is that you? Yes. Go ahead. Um, we were unhappy. Is that you? Yes. Okay. We couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. Okay, so we'll stop there. And then the assignment I give them after going through parts of more about alcoholism and these bedevilments is I ask them to go back and for each of these bedevilments as they're called, um, to give me two examples of each, to write two examples of each. And I say like, don't lie. If something doesn't pertain to you, don't say that it does. So for instance, a lot of us can still make a living. So, you know, so then we can say, yeah, I can make a living. Generally people, or often people can do that one. Although sometimes they say I can make a living, but not really up to my potential, but they have all the other ones. So it's like, Let's have two examples. So I send them back with that. They come back. And then the next time um, when we get together, I say, 
Uh, and what I do, again, people do it differently. I know some people set appointments. What I do is say, when you're done with the work, shoot me a text, and then we'll set up an appointment to talk. Um, however, someone habitually takes a long time, and a long time is more than like a day, a day and a half, then I will, I will set up an appointment. I'll say, you know what, today's Thursday night, let's talk Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Well, 9 a.m. So we're not late for the meeting. Um, so, but I'll set an appointment. So they come back, they've done that work. And I'll say, great. Do you believe you're now, do you now believe you're powerless over food and your life is unmanageable? And if they say yes, I say, congratulations, you've taken step one. A person should always know what step they're on. And we can't be on one, two, and three at the same time. So it's like, great, you've taken step one. Let's move on to step two. So I say step two says, we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. But practically, what do we do? Do we just get a food plan and move on? That doesn't work because we're powerless. Remember, we have no defense against the obsession when it strikes. Then I ask the person to turn to page 43, the last paragraph that starts once more and to read it. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Okay, so that reminds us we have no effective mental defense against the first compulsive bite. Even when we honestly wanna stop, we can't. So if we don't have a mental defense, we need a different kind of defense. And the defense the big book talks about is a spiritual defense, right? Our defense must come from a higher power, not the group, right? What if the whole group goes out and binges? If I'm relying on that, I'm in trouble. What if I can't reach anyone in the group? So must come from a higher power, capital H, capital P. Um, what does that mean though? And how do we access that power? And these questions are answered in chapters four and five. So I tell my sponsee, let's flip the page and go to work. Okay. You want me to start at the top of? Yep. Yeah. In the preceding chapters, you have learned something of alcoholism. We hope you have made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. Let's change it to like compulsive eater and yes. you know, eating. Okay, perfect. Thank you. It's if okay. when if you when you honestly want to you find yourself can, you cannot quit entirely or if when eating you have little control over the amount you take you are probably a compulsive overeater if that be the case you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer okay so then i tell them wanting to stop but being unable to defines an addict and the solution to addiction is a spiritual experience, which we talked about last week on page 25, where it says there's been a revolution in our whole attitude, in our hearts, toward life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. And the central fact becomes the certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way that's miraculous. So I point that out to them. And then it's like, okay, great. We, we want this. How do we get it? So page 44, paragraph four. First, we're going to talk about how we 
don't get it. Okay, go ahead, Kathy. If a mere code. If a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating, many of us would have recovered long ago. But we found that such codes and philosophies did not save us, no matter how much we tried. We could wish to be moral. We could wish to be philosophically comforted. In fact, we could will these things with all our might, but the needed power wasn't there. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, were not sufficient. They failed utterly. Moral code or philosophy of life is something I try to achieve by my own power, by saying like, I'll try to be nicer. I'll try to be a better person. I'll try to live up to the standards of my religion. But I couldn't because I didn't have the power to do it. I had the desire to be a nicer person. I couldn't do it. Um, And now it gets to the, really the crux of the issue. I had lack of power. Lack of power, that was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live. And it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how were we to find this power? Okay, so I think it's really important to tell our sponsees like how critical those sentences are, right? Whenever we want to solve a problem, we need to define the problem. And my problem isn't food. My problem isn't lack of desire. My problem isn't lack of knowledge. It's lack of power, right? If I had diabetes, my problem would be a defective pancreas. As a compulsive eater, my problem is lack of power. So we want to smash that home on the person. It doesn't matter how good their food plan is, how many times they go to church, synagogue, mosque, whatever. It doesn't matter. There's a lack of power. Okay. So it says, where are we going to find this power? Go ahead, Kathy. Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. I love love that line. Mm -hmm. So it tells me the numero uno purpose of this book to help me find the power that I need. And then if someone doesn't believe in God or they're not sure about God, I say, okay, let's play detective and let's look at the clues in this sentence. If this power um, is going to solve my problem, it's got to be able to reason, right? The wind or a hurricane or power stronger than me, but they can't think and solve problems. It must be smart if it can figure out how to solve my problems. Third, it must be strong because this illness is, right, more powerful than I am. So it must be more powerful than the illness. And fourth, and most important, I think to me and to all of us, is this power must care about us. Otherwise, why would this power bother trying to solve my problem? So possesses a consciousness, smart, strong, and cares about me. That's our first clues about God. Okay, go ahead, Kathy. That means we have written a book which we believe to be spiritual as well as moral. And it means, of course, that we are going to talk about God. Here, difficulty arises with agnostics. Many times we talk to a new man and watch his hope rise as we discuss his overeating problems and explain our fellowship. 
but his face falls when we speak of spiritual matters, especially when we mention God, for we have reopened a subject which our man thought he had neatly evaded or entirely ignored. We know how he feels. We have shared his honest doubt and prejudice. Okay, so it tells us, and I say to my sponsor, you may have honest doubts and prejudice. That's okay, we're gonna deal with them. The next paragraph is gonna talk about the different types of prejudice that get in the way of a relationship with God. And prejudice doesn't just mean thinking less of people of a different race or religion. It's having a preconceived notion about God in this case that blocks us from God. Okay, go ahead, Kathy. Some of us have been violently anti-religious. To others, the word God brought up a particular idea of him with which someone had tried to impress them during childhood. Perhaps we rejected this particular conception because it seemed inadequate. With that rejection, we imagined we had abandoned the God idea entirely. We were bothered with the thought that faith and dependence upon a power beyond ourselves was somewhat weak, even cowardly. We looked upon this world of wearing individuals, wearing theological systems and inexplicable calamity with deep skepticism. We looked askance at many individuals who claimed to be godly. How could a supreme being have anything to do with it all? Okay, so and this, so this um, paragraph, See, that's why it's important to work on Zoom or in person, because, you know, you're going to keep interrupting your sponsee graciously um, to to point out some stuff. So this paragraph gives us five impediments to a belief in God. And there's a sixth one in the next chapter. And so I, I go over them. I list them. And then I ask them which pertain to you. And then we can talk about it a little. So one, the concept of God I was given as a child is inadequate for some reason. Two, believing in God makes me weak. Three, I can't believe in something that I can't understand. Four, if there was a God, he wouldn't run the universe so poorly. And this is along the lines of, if there was a God, why would he allow war and poverty and human trafficking and you know my lousy childhood and anything else we say? Um, five, people who claim to believe in God aren't very nice. So I don't believe there's a God. And six, and this is, I think, what is a big one for most of us, if we really get honest. If I believe in God, I can't do what I want. Right? As long as I think there's no God, I can do whatever I want. So it's our job to find out these things. And this is where the work is, right? It's not just like meetings and phone calls. Those things are important, but at its essence, this program requires that we find out what's blocking us from God. So then um, I give my sponsee an assignment. I tell them to go back and write their own concept of God, beginning with how they were raised through the years to how it is now. And write about any prejudices they have from that list and not just write them, try to go deeper and refute them. So for instance, someone might say, well, if there was a God, you know, why would there be war and poverty and, you know, human trafficking? And then, well, wait a second, if I'm going to blame God for all the things that have gone wrong, I need to be fair and give him credit for all the things that have gone right. 
So, you know, we, I asked the person to try to work those things out to try and not just stop what with, yeah, a nun hit me with a ruler and she said she was religious. So therefore no religious people are good. I mean, come on. You know, if I meet one nasty Eskimo, I can't think all Eskimos are nasty. It just happened that I met one and, you know, that one was. So we wanted, you know, I encouraged them to really think. And remember, as they're doing this, they've already started praying. That's from day one. Spend at least half an hour a day with God in the morning. So already they're starting to develop a relationship where they can go to God himself with these hard questions. And then I asked them to write on something else. I said, okay, we talked about the four clues about God. Possesses a consciousness, smart, powerful, and cares about you. How does that make you feel? Does that help you to develop a working concept of God? So there's two writing assignments. And then um, I asked them to listen to, I did um, podcasts on We Agnostics part one and part two. And I asked them to listen to part one, text me when they're done. This assignment usually takes more than 24 hours, but you know, shouldn't take more than 48. So then we get back together. We go over the work, you know, and hopefully the person's worked through what their prejudices are. If not, we talk about them. Um, I encourage them to pray about it more because they're developing a concept of God that works. If they've got a concept of God from their childhood, that's just so like mean, like a God who's sitting there with a book, writing down my good deeds on one side, my bad on the other. And if the bad deeds outweigh them, then three seconds after I die, he's standing there with a baseball bat ready to get me. And he's not going to help me here either. Well, that kind of God won't work. So I tell people then maybe to do a visualization and to picture um, God as you would like God to be loving, powerful, smart, caring about you and your old childhood conception and picture the real God who you're starting to believe in pulling the mask off that old God you know, that fake God, kind of like a Toto did with the wizard and the Wizard of Oz, just revealing it's just a man behind a curtain and getting rid of it, you know, to visualize it. So it kind of seeps into our subconscious, our conscious just seeps in everywhere. Um, and then once they feel okay, then we, um, then we go on in the book. And so let's pick up a page 46, paragraph two. Yes, we have agnostic temperament. Yes, we of agnostic temperament have had these thoughts and experiences. Let us make haste to reassure you. We found that as soon as we were able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commenced to get results, even though it was impossible for any of us to fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. Which is God. So I say that line forever puts to rest the argument that a person's higher power could be a light bulb, a chair, or even the group. Um, that power is God, as God is conceived of by the individual, right? The big book takes no position on the religious aspect of God, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, or no religion whatsoever. 
the big book is neutral on that. But this higher power is described um, of at least being a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, right? God is everything or he is nothing. And then I tell the next paragraph is one of my favorite paragraphs because remember, lack of power is our problem. So our solution is power. When do I get my first infusion of power? So go ahead, Kathy, much to our relief. Much to our relief, we discovered we did not need to consider another's conception of God. Our own conception, however inadequate, was sufficient to make the approach and to effect a contact with him. As soon as we admitted the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction provided we took other simple steps. Okay, so to me, this paragraph is one of the most exciting ones in the book. It tells us first how we know if we've really taken a second step. Like, how can I tell? So it says, as soon as we admit it's possible God exists, we get results. And those results are power and direction. So by this point, we should start getting some power, power over the obsession. We may have food thoughts, but we're able to refrain from binging and direction. We start kind of getting this feeling about what we should do in our lives, which is continue on in the next step, right? It says we get this, we begin to be possessed. Isn't that beautiful? Like God possesses us of a new sense of power and direction provided we took other simple steps, providing we continue on in the steps. And this is when we begin to move from point A, like powerlessness to point B, where we have power over the obsession. So do you see how like I'm excited about it? And I really am like, this isn't fake. You need to be too, right? This program is really about falling in love with God on, you know, lesser levels, higher levels. There are plenty of days I say, God, help me care about you more because I'm just too wrapped up in the world and what I want to do. But um, doing this work helps us. When we transmit it to other people, I think we're just wired that that helps us grow. For me, equally as much as, you know, doing like reading the Bible or doing what someone would consider spiritual work right? This is spiritual work. And if I'm just like reading this to myself, eh, but if I'm reading it to a newcomer and getting excited over it and trying to get her excited over it, that's cool. That's where it's fun. That's where, you know, they say how sponsoring is like the coolest, greatest thing. So continue on with the next paragraph. We found we found that God does not make too hard terms with those who seek him. To us, the realm of spirit is broad, roomy, all-inclusive, never exclusive or forbidding. To those who earnestly seek, if it's open, we believe to all men. Right. So it talks about seeking, seeking. This chapter is all about seeking, that we have to just go ahead and um, seek. And how do we do that? Again, by a prayer meditation, spiritual reading. And again, in Bill's story, it says, if an alcoholic fails to enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, 
he can't survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. So that's part of our seeking. Sometimes I run through more on page 47, especially um, if someone has a concept of God that doesn't work. And then I always flip to page 55. So again, I don't sit and go through everything line by line because I want to get the person through the steps quickly. They need, they need power, right? Um, you know, I tell them you can become a PhD in big book later. Right now, let's just do enough to get you power. Um, and so we go to page 55. I say, last time we talked about the prejudice that can block us off from God. And just to make sure we cover all the bases, now let's look at the spiritual cataracts that can block us off from God. And on page 55, the big book tells us about that. So Kathy, the second full paragraph, um, actually, just read the first two sentences. Okay, actually, we were fooling ourselves for deep down in every man, woman, and child, is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. Okay, so again, on this paragraph, I always get like excited because to me, the paragraph's amazing, right? They're telling me when God created me, he put inside of me a heart, lung, kidneys, and the fundamental idea of himself. He loved me so much, he put that knowledge there. So I can say that I'm an agnostic, just like I can say I'm a lung agnostic. I don't believe I have lungs. I've never seen them, right? I can say it. This is America. I can say what I want, but it doesn't mean it's true. And God put the idea of himself there. So if I'm not believing, it's telling me three things that might be blocking me, right? Calamity. Those are bad things that have happened to us or those we love. Pomp, which is worship of myself, right? Wanting everything to go my way and worship of other things, right? Those are our idols. Could be job, money, status, getting married, having kids, how our kids are doing, how much our kids love us, what other people think of us. Um, those things are our idols. And then I say, okay, this may sound daunting, but let's just read the fourth full paragraph on page 55, and that paragraph is a promise. We, we, can find, only, we can only. Oh, we can only clear the ground a bit. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, enables you to think honestly, encourage you to search diligently within yourself, then if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. Okay, so okay, that last sentence is a promise. If we do the work to deal with our prejudices and our spiritual cataracts, and we put in the effort to seek, um, we cannot fail to find God. So then I send them off to listen to the second podcast on We Agnostics, which again, just goes over everything I've gone over with them. But so they hear it again. And then some more things that, you know, we didn't do. Um, again, I don't go through everything line by line. They can go off and do that on their own if they want. And then I tell them to look at the three things, the three spiritual cataracts, calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. And I tell them, write about those, the things that are blocking you. Um, basically, what are our idols? 
what is our thing? I won't be happy unless. And I asked them to read step three in the AA 12 and 12, um, and then to read chapter five in the big book up to the last paragraph on page 63. Because as soon as they're done with this work, we launch right into um, step three. So should we start on that now or wait, Melissa? You want to start on step three? I think I you can. I think, I think. Okay, I'll try and I'll try and finish it. Um, yeah, do so, start. Okay, we'll do what we can. So the person comes back, they've done all this work. And generally at this point, a person says, okay, I, I believe there's a God. And I believe this God is good. So it's like, great, we can continue. So um, is a step, you believe that there's a God and that God can restore you to sanity. They say, yes, it's like, great, you've taken step two, let's move on, step three. That's the step where we learn exactly how to turn our will and life over to God. And when you think about it, like that's a hard concept. What does it mean to turn it over? What's my will and my life? And chapter five of the big book will help us understand it. So let's just start right at the beginning on page 58. And I'm gonna keep interrupting you a lot here. Okay. Okay. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Okay, Those so who... to recover, to recover, we have to thoroughly follow their path. So if someone asks you to do something that's not in this big book, if it, I mean, obviously like food plans aren't in this big book. So let's say that contradicts what's in this big book. It's not the path. It may work, it may not work but I was so sick. I wanted something that was guaranteed to work. So if we thoroughly follow this path, we will not fail. Okay, go ahead. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Okay. So then I stop them and I say, okay, this is a good time to have a discussion about honesty. Like in a nutshell, people who aren't committed to being honest won't recover, like period. Um, doesn't matter, you can do everything else this program calls for. If you're not honest, you won't recover. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, I'm constitutionally incapable of being honest. But no, doubtful. We're people who are generally unwilling to be honest because the price is high. But once we take a first step, suddenly the price doesn't seem too high. Um, and after going through that paragraph, I say, okay, we're starting your third step. Is there any dishonesty in your life now? Like, let's just talk about, since we started working together, has there been anything you've been dishonest with me about, right? Here's a chance to come clean. We can't turn our will and our lives over to God when we deep down know we're being dishonest. It won't work. So I say, is there any dishonesty about your food? Any other lies you've told or any lie by omission, something you know you should have said and you haven't? If she admits it, I don't say you've been dishonest, goodbye. I just remind her how critical it is to be honest and make sure she's committed to being completely honest going forward. And I remind her, that if we're dishonest, it's like we took a big black magic marker and write the words, keep out God across our hearts. It's just, she's wasting her time. 
not really my time, right? I get credit with God for trying to help someone, whether they recover or not. I mean, it's keeping me from helping someone else, but, um, you know, she's really stealing from herself. So, um, okay, go ahead, Kathy. There are such unfortunates. They are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those too who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. Okay, so a couple things here. Um, our stories disclose what we used to be like, what happened and what we are like now. So when we share our stories, that's what we're supposed to talk about. What we used to be like, train wrecks, what happened, God, and what we're like now, his agents. All our stories should be like that. Obviously, details different. And then the requirements to work the steps. It's a decision. We have to decide two things. Do you want what we have? And I ask them, do you want, you know, spiritual healing based on these steps and willing to go to any length to get it? And she says, yes, we keep going. Okay. At some of these, we balked. We thought oh, we could okay. find, oh, I'm sorry. So, so it's okay. So balking or not wanting to doesn't disqualify us. We can make a decision to do something we dislike um, because we have a greater goal in mind, right? Like when my kids were babies and they'd wake up screaming in the middle of the night, I didn't want to go and change their diaper or feed them or whatever needed to be done, but I had a greater goal in mind. I wanted to be a good mom. That superseded my desire to go back to sleep. Yes, so that's what we need to do here. Balking, it's okay, as long as we have a commitment to the greater goal, which is to, be, to recover and be of use to God and others. Although at this point, we're not thinking of being of use to God and others. We just wanna stop the misery. And that's fine at step three. At this point, it's fine. Okay, go ahead. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the results was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with compulsive overeating, cunning, baffling, powerful, Dang. without help. Okay, wait, we'll stop here. So remember that we deal with, let's say food, cunning, baffling, powerful. Again, they're using that word powerful. This illness is more powerful than I am right? The big book tells me lack of power is my dilemma. So the solution has to be a source of power than the illness. And look at that word like cunning. I mean, a piece of food, right? A bag of potato chips isn't cunning. It's a common noun. It can't think. But they're implying like there's a not very nice spiritual force behind this that is not after our best welfare. So I best hook up with some 
very nice spiritual force that is deeply concerned with my welfare. So do you see as a sponsor, a couple things, um, you know, we want to give good information, but we want to transmit our love for God and our appreciation for what he's done. So when we do this, you know, we just want to use the words that, um, so that we can like, make someone say like, yes, I want what, you know, I want that too, right? We want to not just like read a script, but transmit something. Okay, go ahead, Kathy, without help. Without help, it is too much for us, but there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. And what a perfect place to stop. There is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. 